We are joined by Willis Sparks, the director of global macro for the Eurasia Group, talking to him a few weeks before he makes his trek to Iowa. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, your your whole life's about assessing risk, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why? <laughs> why? Why? Because uh, we live in a globalized world. You know, I. Um, I, in, in some of the speeches I've made recently, I might do this in Des Moines. I talk about being um, uh, a student and deciding that I had to go to the Berlin Wall because the Berlin Wall was suddenly open and people were, you know, hitting it with hammers. And I wanted to do that. So I didn't have any money, but I put it on a credit card and I went there and I hit the Berlin Wall with a hammer and I came home with pieces of it. And I tell that story now just to illustrate how completely different the world that we live in is that there is no way that you can throw up a wall overnight made out of cheap concrete and think that what's on the other side of that wall isn't going to impact our lives. And, you know, we can just go on about our business and not worry about what happens in the Middle East, in China, in, uh, in Russia's neighborhood, in, in any part of the rest of the world. We do live in a globalized economy. And although, you know, globalization doesn't quite mean the same thing that it did 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's still a fact and you we're we can't go back we're not going back and so there are a lot of people that are looking to do business um or invest in other countries in other markets there are also people who are investing right here in this country people that are you know in the in the uh, in the agriculture sector people looking to buy farmland who know that there's a lot of risk that is being created for them halfway around the world that they need to understand. And so the company that I uh, work for, Eurasia Group, does that. We help people understand the way um, the politics of individual countries or the big global political trends, like the kind that I talk about, are having a direct impact on their businesses and therefore on their lives. And, you know, uh, risk also creates opportunity. And, it, it, you know, it's not just like all the scary, terrible things that are happening. The world is changing in ways that for people who understand, you know, uh, where the not just where the ball is now, but where the ball is going to be, there are opportunities in that that can help people in their businesses and in their lives. So how do you prepare people for risk? Let's throw out the the trade war that Trump had when he was when he was president. How do you clearly that had an impact and in certain sectors it likely still does today. How do you prepare for something like that? Well, I, let me first say that, you know, we shouldn't talk about the trade war in the past tense because um, President Biden has not changed very much. And if we're talking about tariffs, um, President Biden hasn't really changed very much of, of what the Trump administration put in place. Um, I will say that U.S.-China trade hit an all-time record in 2022, despite the tariffs. Um, that's a very positive sign that underneath, uh, you know, what all of the strife in the U.S.-China relationship, there is still a recognition that um, on both sides that, hey, we got to do business. You know, our economy is not going to go up without your economy. That doesn't mean there isn't a lot of risk, um, you know, but the, but the, the fact that um, people have absorbed the risk that has come from the tariffs, particularly I know in the agriculture sector, tariffs had a bigger impact than they did on a lot of other sectors. Um, I think that the big emerging risk, maybe not emerging, already emerged risk in U.S.-China is more about the tech sector than anything else, just for 
you know, a variety of reasons that have to do with the future of the global economy. But I think the first thing you do to prepare for risk is understand exactly what the risk is. Um, the better you, the more refined your understanding of what is causing the problem and what are the factors that allow the problem to persist, the better you are at figuring out how you're going to hedge against that risk, how you're going to make a plan that allows for you to absorb some of the shocks that inevitably happen so that they don't knock you over. As you look at the world right now, is it, is it Gaza? Is it Russia's attack on Ukraine? Is it China? What's our, what's our biggest wild card, our, our biggest concern heading into 2024? Or are they all concerning in their own ways? I think they're concerning in their own ways. Um, I think I think the answer the uh, I'll, the, the answer to the que your question I think is China. But I want to step back for a moment and say, you know, where we are in Gaza is that the war is about to become a lot uglier and a lot more intense before it gets resolved because um, the the war in Gaza has now moved into the parts of the country where a lot of the civilians. They don't have anywhere to evacuate to at this point. They're, they can't stay out of the way much longer. So it's already really, really bloody. Um, Israel and by extension, the United States are suffering a lot of international reputational damage from that, um, particularly from people who are in parts of the world where media uh, isn't necessarily providing them with the opportunity to figure out how this whole conflict started. You know, there are a lot of people that don't know that Hamas murdered 1,200 people to kick this off. Um, but the truth is, in that case, you know, there there is some reason for long term, and I would underline a long term optimism out of on the other side of all of this horror that is going on right now, because the current leadership in Israel, you know, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the leadership of Hamas are both going to be sidelined when this is over. Netanyahu is, is unbelievably unpopular and only remains the prime minister because there's an active war going on. As soon as this, com as soon as this phase of the war is over, Netanyahu is going to be out, and, and there may not be a lot of Hamas's command and control left. Um, that creates a long-term opportunity. If you have new leadership, that has a different understanding of what it is going to take to actually have a sustainable peace in that region of the world. And if you have outside players, I'm thinking mainly of Saudi Arabia, but some others as well, that have been looking for business opportunities there and looking for an opportunity to make peace with Israel, there's there are things they can do for the Palestinians as well. You know, the hopeful view is that what comes out of all of this horrible situation is at least the chance, certainly not a guarantee that things there can get better. Russia and Ukraine have settled into a stalemate kind of war of attrition. Um, I think that the, you know, my shorthand way of talking about the war is to say that it's not clear that Ukraine can win the war. It is clear that Russia lost the war in the first 72 hours because Russia has isolated itself permanently, or at least as long as Vladimir Putin is alive. Um, Europe is not going to go back to buying Russia's main exports anymore. Russia still has customers in Asia, but they're getting discount prices for the oil and gas and other commodities that Russia is still exporting. So Russia's basically become a rogue state. Russia's and that's become, not sustainable, right? The discounted that they're offering? Uh, well, it is, uh, you know, we'll see how long it's sustainable. It
to certainly, I mean, it's sustainable for Russia in the medium term just because they have such an abundance of commodities. Um, and it's certainly in China's interest to keep Russia on its feet. But the Chinese are not helping the Russians in Ukraine. The Chinese are just trying to keep Russia from uh, collapsing, essentially, um, and also, you know, buying some energy at bargain basement prices, which is really <laughs> good if you're China and you're the biggest, you know, importer of of uh, oil in the world. Um, so, you know, Russia is is sort of become a permanent rogue state, a kind of bigger version of Iran or even North Korea. And that's a, a problem going forward. Ukraine is probably going to have to negotiate away some of its land at a certain point. Russia um, is still in charge of about 20% of Ukraine's territory. That may fluctuate a little bit. We'll see if there doubt there's going to be any big moves in 2024. You never know what, you know, we don't see the weapons that can change the game very much. Eventually, if Ukraine has to give away 20% um, of its land in order to get a deal, there is probably a European future for Ukraine. But again, as with Middle East peace, that's not a that's not a three year project. That's a <laughs> 10, 15 year project. Um, so finally, I, I said that China is the big story because China is has been the engine of the global economy, or at least the, the engine of global growth, I should say, for more than a generation now. And we know that China is not going to go back to the days when it was growing 10 or 12 percent. Um, but hopefully demand in China is going to recover, you know, particularly for people that are in, in agriculture. Um, hopefully China is going to begin to grow at a faster pace than it has grown coming out of COVID. Hopefully the US-Chinese relationship will um, at least stabilize, which looks like where we are now, rather than continuing its spiral downhill. Um, but the, the good news on China is, you know, it, it, it's much more structurally important for every aspect of the global economy than either of the other two wars. Um, the good news is that what we've seen from China is a recognition that if you're weak, that means you better be nice. You know, it's not like North Korea where your weakness is a sign that you need to become more belligerent and issue more threats. Um, you know, the fact that um, President Biden and President Xi of China had a very productive meeting in San Francisco last month at the APEC summit, that's a really good sign. At least they're talking um, that China is reaching out to Japan and South Korea. That's good that China is trying to improve its relationship with Europe. We're seeing something really good, which is China's response to crisis is to try and tone down the crisis and to bring something, to bring us back closer to the status quo. China is recognizing that they benefit from the current system. They're not trying to destroy the current system. They're trying to bend it in their direction a little bit, but that's not what Russia's doing. That's not what Iran and North Korea are doing. And that's actually a very good news story, but there's a lot of risk. You know, there's an election coming up in Taiwan next month um, that is really could, you know, create some more friction in the U.S.-China relationship because we think there's a good chance that the guy that China does not want to win the Taiwan election is going to win. So, you know, and we're also, you know, we're all we're always one spy balloon away from things going sour in the relationship. So that's the big story. That's the one we got to keep an eye on. For the moment, it's going in a constructive direction. Um, you know, 
when are these tariffs coming down? Well, I, I think we're going to have to have a generational change in leadership before that happens. Um, but again, I just emphasized that the U.S.-China relationship continues to grow pretty strongly despite the tariffs because there is demand on both sides for a better economy that, that you know, that, that helps both countries um, make their way completely out of the pandemic. What about the post-pandemic recovery globally? In our country, obviously, inflation is still higher than the Fed wants. It's higher than the consumers want. It has been going down, but you know we're, not, we're still not down to that magic 2% level. Globally, we can pick out other countries where inflation is far higher still. What, what is that factor globally as you assess where things are? Our concern going into 2024 is that although we have reached the top of the cycle in terms of interest rates, that it, it, it may not come down as quickly. We may not see things ease as quickly as people are hoping for and maybe even people are expecting. Higher for longer. Um, Europe is not in good shape economically. China, as I've mentioned, is very slow, not just for because of COVID. China obviously has a lot. I mean, China's whole economic model is really changing at the moment, and their adjustment is being made very slowly because it's a command and control system. It's not like it's not as dynamic as the American economy for all of the faults of American politics. So but I think that the you know the the biggest risk coming out of the pandemic is really in the developing world and you know what we've started calling the global south. Um, I really hate that phrase because a lot of it's not south, but <laughs> um, but you know what, what call them emerging markets, call them developing countries. But there's a lot of countries out there, and I don't just mean poor countries; I mean middle income countries that already had debt problems before the pandemic happened, and now they got a lot more debt problems. And erratic weather patterns, you know, which a lot of people think has to do with with warming, with climate change, is also putting real strain on a lot of budgets around the world. And this is obviously a time when rich countries are worried about their own recovery and they're not necessarily game to refinance debt for uh, emerging market countries. So, you know, that I do think that's a real concern going forward is that, you know, you've got a lot of countries that are sort of left to their own devices at the moment that were already had structural problems that were made a lot worse by the pandemic. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, obviously we're going to be talking in, in, the, in, in U.S. politics in this election season over the year a lot about immigration. And Europeans obviously have been talking a lot about immigration since the crisis that they went through in 2015, 2016. Um, I am very concerned that for a variety of reasons, this is the shape of things to come, that flows of people around the world are going to be the big story of the next generation. And what do you do about that? Like, how do you, because, you know, a lot of people will treat refugees as a threat. And that's not with no, that's not for no reason. But a lot of these people are just people that can't raise their kids in a safe place that are trying to figure out where can I have a stable life? I'm not, I don't necessarily have to live in this country or that country, but I don't want my, I, I want food for my family. I want my kids to grow up in a place where they can get an education and not have to join a gang and not get killed in a war. And I'm concerned that because of a lot of the sort of political 
upheaval that we're going through in this transition international politics plus you know changing weather patterns that have to do with climate change plus a lot of other structural factors we're going to have more and more people on the move in years to come and if we don't stop thinking seriously about what we're going to do about that and stop treating it as just sort of a political thing that we can raise money off of and club the other side i honestly think in this country i don't see either party coming up with serious proposals about how we're going to intelligently manage immigration policy at the southern border. I think it's it's too good a political issue for both sides to beat each other up with. And the problem is going to become too big for that, not just in this country, but in a lot of other countries. Where does that change? Do you see that we reach a point where it's the business community, just speaking in our country, is it the business community that is eventually just going to push so hard against an administration in Congress that, hey, you have to do something, we need this change now? Like, where's this change coming from? Because you can go back for decades yeah. and neither party, we've had mixed party control, we've had solo control by a party, nobody addresses this, and it's all talking points in an election. Yeah. Um, to be very simplistic about it, I would say that if prosperity in, in, in the United States depended on politics in the United States, we would have all gone bankrupt <laughs> um, maybe 170 years ago. Um, I think that the engine of change in this country, it's my personal opinion, it's entrepreneurs and inventors. Um, I personally think that climate change is going to be solved by people who invent new ways to take carbon out of the atmosphere. And we're seeing that already. We're already seeing that. Um, and I, it's not that the politicians don't matter or that we should be glib about what they, I mean, I think that the effort to limit carbon emissions is important, but I, but I, I agree with the premise of your question, which is that when business goes to Congress in both parties, not just, you know, I'm going to go to my favorite party and try to make sure they win so they'll do what I want. But when business goes to both parties and say, we have a real problem here and you're going to have to come up with serious solutions to this because we can't afford to play games with this. And I, I think at a certain point, immigration, if it isn't already, is going to become that kind of issue where people are going to say, look, we need immigration, but we need immigration that makes sense. We need immigration. We need a system that we can maintain control over. We need people coming across the border and making our country stronger, but we also need to know who's coming across the border, and we need to manage the flow of people better, even including for the sake of the of the migrants themselves. Um, you know, I and and I think the politics about this is not as simple as people make it out to be. I've heard Republicans who say we need more immigrants, and Democrats that are you know really suspicious of anything that has to do with immigration. Um, so yes, I do think that the business community, that entrepreneurs in general, that the scientific community, that you know, it, you know, artificial intelligence is a big and growing subject in our lives. But I do think that there are going to be things, there are going to be game-changing new technologies that are going to create new potential solutions for people who are paying attention and that the business community can use its weight, its influence, and its money to get members of both parties in Congress to move. And you can get positive change that way. In fact, I think that's kind of the whole history of this country. Big challenge before us. Hey, we appreciate the time and look forward to seeing you soon in Iowa. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to being there.